everybody, and welcome to Cinema on Tap, your weekly movie podcast with a refreshing selection of movie reviews and industry topics on tap for discussion. We've got a rotating lineup of reviews, top fives, flight selections, and of course, tasty beer. I'm Scott Lenz, here with my intoxicating co-host, Christian Ubius. Christian, I feel like I may have to work on uh, an adjective there, because I, I don't know if it'll have the same effect if I call you intoxicating every week. But if it serves your ego, I can keep it. What do you say? You could go with inebriated. <laughs> I hope you're not already inebriated, Christian, as hopefully we just cracked our beers as we begin recording this podcast episode. Speaking of, allow me to do that while I introduce could, uh, our... I was going to say you could go with... Uh, sure, Christian, if I wanted to get us that explicit marking on the Apple Podcast Store... <laughs> Of course, we are once again joined by a fantastic friend of the show here, not appearing for the first time, however, appearing for the first time on his own. We have Anthony Finns returning. Anthony, how's it going? Hey guys, doing okay, doing good, happy to be back, talking about some nuclear weapons and some movies. Of course, yeah, I mean, we're actually, this is actually, uh, instead of cinema on tap, we'll be talking uh, weapons of mass destruction on tap, so... We'll be getting all oh, of your A-bomb, yeah. H-bomb, and other types of uh, seriously COVID, devastating bombs. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> COVID, weapon of mass yeah. destruction. Bioweapon, perhaps. Just uh, kidding. Yeah. It's not that kind of podcast. Christian, uh, okay. obviously, we brought Anthony back, and I know there's a, a particularly cool reason we wanted to have him on, so I'll let you go ahead and, and introduce that and chat with Anthony about it. But... Uh, Anthony, I do want to say there were, I, I, I don't, I can't remember when I was with, I think Scott, it was when we were at a brewery and we were talking about the podcast and about future guests and he's like, you know what I want to have on? Anthony. I really liked everything he had to say <laughs> that one time. And I was like, I, and, and then I was thinking, you know, I can't think of a better episode to have you on than Oppenheimer. I floated to you the idea of having you on the Barbie episode and you were not for that. <laughs> yeah i was not i was i was i was like i don't know if i'm the person to talk about barbie although i liked barbie i enjoyed barbie but you, you went like, to a, you maybe there's a barbie better barbie girl out there there's a better barbie girl out there that's true yeah. there, there, there probably is but i'm sure there's a great barbie girl but at the end of the day i'm just ken so yeah i don't know you're you're kenergetic enough for me anthony oh thank you scott i appreciate that uh, <laughs> All right, but no, Anthony, the reason that I also wanted to have you on is to talk specifically because you had a short film that was in a competition recently. And so I have seen it. Scott, have you seen it? I did not get a chance to watch it. Christian shared the link with me today, but I, uh, like a lot of folks, was working. <laughs> so I haven't had a chance to check it that out is, yet. So I will be watching totally it fine. later. <laughs> no worries i will be logging off now it's been great talking to you guys uh, <laughs> well dang no i'm kidding i'm kidding i'm kidding yeah i sent the link a little bit late i sent the link a little bit late so that's that's on me um to be fair christian asked me to send it yesterday and i sent it today in the afternoon so um uh but yeah christian you saw it i did see it yes uh i i i mean we don't know what the name of the movie is yet. Do you? I was going to give you the opportunity to introduce it and or the plot. Oh, the sure. Unless you want me to do that, which I can. No, sure, sure. I can. I can. Yes, I can intro my film. So, uh, yeah. So last year, um, as part of my master's program at Florida State University at their film school, 
Uh, we did, of course, a thesis film at the end of the graduate program. So my film was titled uh, Mi Hija, which in Spanish means my daughter. Uh, and the film basically follows this young girl who is reeling from the loss of her mother. Um, and during that time of grieving her mother's loss, she is beginning to be haunted by the ghost of La Llorona, which is a, a famous uh, Mexican folk tale. And now she has to try to convince her father that La Llorona is coming for her, which is a bit difficult because her and her father have somewhat of a rocky relationship that has worsened in the time since her mother's passing. So there's this ticking clock of La Llorona coming for this child, where at the same time, it's also about a father and daughter trying to repair their relationship in the wake of tragic loss. So it's part horror film, part family drama, um, all fun, except for the moments where it's not. So yeah, that's a little, that's a little rundown. It's about the best I can give about, about me, huh? I'm going to make one joke. I, I must make one joke. I, I, looking back on it, very fitting that it's a dead wife movie, considering this is a Christopher Nolan episode. Oh, yeah, you're right. I didn't even think about that. That is true, though. Nobody yeah, loves a absolutely. dead wife like Chris Nolan. <laughs> absolutely. Of course, Anthony, obviously, hopefully, we'll have some listeners checking that out and helping uh, get some eyes on your latest project. Do you have anywhere else where people can find your work in terms of anything else that's publicly available? Sure, yeah. So uh, in terms of my other work, uh, that's not my only film. I've made other films as well prior to that. Um, some of my projects can be found on my YouTube channel, which is just Anthony Finns, um, as well as a trailer for Miha. Uh, the thing about Miha is that since it is a student film that was funded by the university, uh, the university is keeping it private uh, for the time being. However, it will be playing hopefully online as part of the Toronto International Nollywood Film Festival. There is an online screening competition for that film festival as well coming up uh, in August. So it's going to be August 20th through September 9th. Um, I don't have the specific date of when the film will play just yet, as they have not told me, uh, but it will be competing in the divisions of Best Horror and Best Student Film. So hopefully you guys can be able to check it out there. Uh, and if not, you can watch the trailer to tide you over. <laughs> Well, it's it, awesome to have you here, yeah. and we wish you luck as the as the film enters some competition. Definitely wish you the Thank best you. there with those awards. And, of course, the, now, or, I, I'll, far away, I'll Christian. Say, no, I, I, I did want to say one thing, because the, the images that I, I loved, that I was reeling back as to how well done they were, were the, um, I think it was in the beginning when you see uh, La Llorona through the window, and uh, mm. as the um, curtain goes through, the curtain perfectly matches up with the disappearance of it. And at the end, mm. when there's like a, a shine of light, and as that shine of light is passing through, again, La Llorona is like disappearing through it. Who, who, uh, how you were able to do that with, with your editor, both of those, I was like, damn, that's impressive. So Thank I, you. Yes, absolutely. And honestly, sh shot beautifully, really en enjoyed it. Um, we do have a time crunch. <laughs> we do have a bit of a time <laughs> no, no crunch. Worries. But we thoroughly enjoyed it, and I am looking forward to honestly seeing what else you do, bud. So oh, thank thanks you. for Appreciate talking that. about it. Yeah, thank we're you gonna, so much. We're going to get into discussions now. We, we're going to talk Oppenheimer in a bit, but like I said last week, um, there are a couple of things we weren't able to touch on last week that we should touch on now. Let's go a little bit out of order, despite the outline that I sent you all. 
First of all, Barbie has finally hit $1 billion. Barbillion, folks. It happened. Wow. Oppenheimer is half a billion. Which is, frankly, insane. Still great. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's wow at, at what these movies have been able to do. But I'm, I'm not sure right now Barbie's the second highest grossing movie of this year, so Mar Super Mario Brothers is number one. Let's let's. Yeah. I think it can catch it. I think it can. Catch I think so up too. To it. Yeah. I was on the record with some other folks as Christian and I had had some friends we were talking uh, about this box office situation with before the movies came out, and I was just simply not convinced that we were going to see this massive wave of people going to the theaters. I felt Barbie was going to do well, but I wasn't sure about Oppenheimer with it being a three-hour biopic, <laughs> which it's, it's more than that, but yeah. at its core essence, it is a three-hour biopic, and I just wasn't sure, and it's been so crazy to see how both of these movies have popped off in an insane ways, and I really had absolutely no guesses that Barbie would come close to the Super Mario Brothers movie, and now if it keeps playing through August, there's a chance that it, becomes, it overtakes it, becomes the biggest movie of the year. I never would have expected that. I thought that Mission Impossible out of these three movies would be the highest grossing. I Well, and the fascinating thing, too, about Barbie being as high numbers as it is and getting close to Super Mario Brothers, um, Super Mario Brothers had IMAX and Barbie doesn't. Barbie's been completely pushed out of IMAX and a lot of these high-format uh, screenings that, you know, they add up. They add Those numbers add up. And the fact that it has not had that push has also been really interesting. So it's been doing that off of the back of just general screenings and then stuff like Dolby, but that's not as obviously as much seen as like an IMAX screen, which is I think what everybody thinks of when they think of uh, premium format. But even in terms of Oppenheimer, I mean, um, Oppenheimer, it, three hour movies, you can't fit as many screenings in a day as you could. Mm. And I know that this was something that two years ago was affecting no Time to Die for James Bond. That's one of the reasons why it wasn't hitting some of the numbers that it could have, despite being, honestly, a pretty good success story. It's, it's, it's fascinating, all, all, all of the things that we're, able, that we're able to see, but there, I had to go see Oppenheimer in IMAX 3D, not, not IMAX 3D, in IMAX 70mm at midnight, because they had to add a midnight showing. <laughs> Christian, we were exact opposites because, as you know, and Anthony, I'll tell you now, I went to go see Oppenheimer in IMAX 70 millimeter at 6 a.m. <laughs> wow. So wow, wow, they, wow. they are fitting in these ridiculous show times for this movie, and people are turning up to go. It was not just me alone uh, as a total freak in the theater. I was out there at the Chinese theater in Hollywood with – not a full screening at 6 a.m., but Sunday morning, probably 60% of that theater was full of people who had showed up to see Oppenheimer in IMAX 70 millimeter. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that format when we get into actually discussing Oppenheimer for anyone out there listening who may not be aware of the differences in format, but just crazy how they are working around the movie's time constraints and still yeah. being rewarded financially. We're still in the midst of a strike. And that was something that we touched on last week. The WGA and the SAC after strike are continuing, and it feels like every single week we're just unsure as to what movies are going to be coming up later on. And it's weird, and we are in the midst of three studios 
having released in huge, huge, huge movies. Paramount with Mission Impossible, Universal with Oppenheimer, Warner Brothers with Barbie. Barbie. And their stars are not able to talk about them right now. And even for the for the um, world premiere of Barbie, before the SAG after strike, Noah Baumbach didn't walk the red carpet because he was standing in solidarity with the writers. So it's one of those where even then, I mean, there's a lot of directions you could take this. There's also a shot that had Margot Robbie been going out there doing more interviews or had Robert Downey Jr. been out there giving more interviews or had, I, I, I don't know, some of the writers doing something here, we could, they, they could have had even bigger runs. It's, it's just a complete unknown and a lot of movies are still being affected by it. I don't know if you all had on your radar the movie written by Julio Torres, Problemista. That is, I highly recommend you check out the trailer then. It, it looks phenomenal. And that one had to get pushed over because, I mean, it technically has Emma Stone as a producer. It has Riza and Tilda Swinton in the cast, but they cannot guarantee a good shelf life for that movie without people promoting it so it's just weird times that we're in right now very weird and i think that's partly why we were seeing such intense promotion and marketing for barbie in the run-up to the film's release because of course um, uh, beyond the trailers and the posters and things that people surely saw around there have been all sorts of brand tie-ins and Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling were doing interviews and showing up on red carpets and, and doing everything they could to be promoting this movie before the strike happened. And I'm sure that was a consideration for the publicity department at Warner Brothers. They wanted to make sure that they could have those folks out and about <laughs> before they were gone. And in honor of Oppenheimer, Amazon Prime now offers free two-day shipping for any nuclear bombs that you want. Uh, that's right. I actually have one showing up. It's supposed to be. Uh, it's actually in the Amazon locker near me, so I gotta go get one. <laughs> I gotta go pick that up. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, that's that's it's funny because it's awful. One movie that I did want us to talk about: Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles: Mutant Mayhem. Anthony, have you seen it? I have not seen it, unfortunately. Bro, I've been a little bit behind on some films. Anthony, that's but. actually unacceptable. Because yeah. I know that, that that you had several opportunities to see it. <laughs> you are aware. You are aware of that. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be completely honest. Um, I did not grow up with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They were not my guys growing up. Um, and so on those opportunities, I thought I'd leave those opportunities available for the for the big turtle fans that I know exist. Um, yeah, that's not actually a property that's nostalgic for me. I don't have any sort of long-lasting love for them. I have seen the trailer for the film, and I thought it looked like a whole lot of fun. Um, and I would check it out at some point, uh, but there's still movies that, yeah, they're just they're sticking out there. I have to see. I still have to see Talk to Me, um, and I'm a big horror guy, so that's really bothering me that I haven't seen it yet. Um, I haven't seen Oppenheimer, which is weird, because now I'm doing this podcast with you. I'm kidding. I, I have seen Oppenheimer. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no. Yeah, I was going to talk about it as if I had seen it because I felt self-conscious, but no. Uh, no, I promise I've seen it. I nice. am a little bit with you, Anthony, because I don't have a ton of nostalgia for the Turtles. I think I watched one of the cartoons, whatever one ran in the 90s and was on in the early 2000s when I was young. 
but I did have a good time with this one. And it, the trailer mm. makes uh, the movie seem like it's going to be just a pretty fun time. And that's exactly what it is. I think the animation style is especially a draw. It's very unique in comparison to other movies I've seen, uh, animated movies I've seen. And it seems like the folks over at Sony who are making the Spider-Verse movies are really encouraging other animation studios to push the bounds of their uh, of their creativity and really try to come up with new and just unconventional different from what we've seen styles of character design of action uh, of how to depict action and there's just a lot to recommend about mutant mayhem purely on just the animation that was used uh christian i know a lot of people have found it to be just like honestly kind of gross and weird <laughs> like some of the human character designs especially are a little bit off-putting but what'd you make of just the animation for the movie it's it's one where as soon as i saw the trailer i definitely did think to myself the the only reason this has come about is because we're in a post spider-verse world so i i i agree with what you said <clears throat> there are some incredible cuts in this movie there are some incredible action match cuts in this movie that I think are, are up there among some of the best scenes in the entire year. So with that, I I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it's more I think it's more than just a fun time, even though that's primarily what it is. It it's also just a a weird uh, it, it's a weird gooey like like to to use the turtles language, very oozy kind of it, it feels like the animation is like bleeding out of the images kind of a movie and that's that's or the crayon is bleeding out of the images is what i meant to say and i like that and it, I, I i didn't just like that i enjoyed the voice acting and now more more than a lot of other times voice acting is is needs to be recognized you know as, as just one of the best things that a movie can offer yeah, the, the four turtles here are played by Mike Abbey, Shaman Brown Jr., Nicholas Cantu, and Brady Noon, who notably are all actual teenagers. And often the turtles are not voiced or acted, in the case of the live action movies, by teenagers. It's, it's older actors playing younger. And by casting actual teenage guys to play these teenage mutant ninja turtles i think it's an absolute asset to the movie because they have great chemistry as a, a group of four and they really bring these characters alive especially when they're just acting like teenagers and they're messing with each other or they're goofing around or they're sneaking out from their home in the sewers to get away from master splinter you know there's just some almost coming-of-age qualities to this movie, and those four voice performances really bring out the best in the premise. Let's move on. Let's move on. We're going to start talking about Oppenheimer. Let's just intro Oppenheimer a little bit. It is a three-hour biopic on the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer, and it stars Killian Murphy and basically every single name that you could think of. So we've got... If they weren't in Barbie, they were in Oppenheimer. <laughs> Or if they weren't in Asteroid City, or if they, honestly, if they weren't in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, there have been big cast movies this year. The ensemble but film is thriving. The ensemble <laughs> film is very much thriving. It's a movie that Christopher Nolan made with Universal after he had issues dealing with Warner Brothers due to COVID and the release of Tenet. 
and how much money he thought Tenet should make and their decision at when they existed as HBO Max to release movies simultaneously in the movie theater and also on their streaming service, which is a whole can of worms we actually haven't talked about here. But just the, the issues that many directors have with movies going to streaming and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, for Nolan, he's, uh, he's a big tent filmmaker. His, his movies have high budgets, and he wants to see that financial return, I'm sure, because it enables him to keep receiving high budgets and making his gigantic science fiction blockbusters that he's made. But he's also becoming, you know, increasingly experimental in some ways. He's always had a little bit of, experimental, uh, of an experimental nature with him his, you know, from his first movies on. And when his movies return these big financials, it allows him to continue to command budget, to command, to bring in movie stars, to continue to work with the best of the best and make these giant movies that draw $550 million <laughs> worth of people to come see them and to go see it at 6 a.m. in a strange, in a unique format, shall we say. So <laughs> I, I think what he did in terms of leaving his longtime studio and going to Universal was a pretty ballsy move and he's seeing immediate returns for it as Warner Brothers right now is experiencing massive success with Barbie, but before that was mired in controversy because of uh, their role that they're playing in the strikes right now with their CEO, David Zaslav, whose who's large compensation package has come under fire in the wake of the strikes, and in some of the decisions they made with canceling movies like Batgirl or removing things from HBO Max, rebranding the service. Uh, and so they've been Max. dealing with a lot of PR problems. Yes, just Max. Whereas Universal has, to the best of my knowledge, kind of stayed out of that a little bit. They don't have a streaming service of their own. And yeah, that's true. NBC Universal. I'm, yeah, all the, all the agglomeration of these uh, <laughs> giant companies, I forgot. But uh, Universal at least is having a win right now, bringing Christopher Nolan into the fold. Well, in terms of the strike, they did cut down off-season some trees so that um, strikers wouldn't have any shade. Indeed they did. This is true. The tree and lawyers were being sent after them. Yeah. Yeah. But with that, uh, what, Anthony, is your relationship with Christopher Nolan? Are you generally a fan? I know that you agreed to do this episode, but I don't know if you hate him or if you like him. And then next question, because, uh, Scott, I know your relationship with Christopher Nolan, but I do want to know what format did you all see Oppenheimer in? Because there are some specific formats that, that Christopher yeah. Nolan really wants you to watch this movie in. My prior relationship with Nolan, um, I am a fan. I am a fan. I, I um, of course, as every teenage boy did, uh, I loved The Dark Knight when it came out. Um, and it's still one of my absolute favorites. Uh, but beyond that, I think Inception is a masterpiece. Um, I think Memento is a really interesting film and a lot of fun. And Dunkirk is actually one of my favorite war films as well. Um, it's one of my absolute favorite depictions of war in sort of this kind of uh, brutal and uncaring and, and just sort of unglamorous view of it. Um, so I think he's a phenomenal filmmaker. Uh, even films of his that don't entirely connect with me, I've always thought have been very ambitious and, and very uh, uh, masterful. I mean, he's a masterful filmmaker. He's got such great uh, control over his vision and control of the lens and control of the story. Um, and I'm always interested to see what he does next. Um, again, even if it's maybe not something that's totally my cup of tea. Uh, but uh, without giving too much away, Oppenheimer was my cup of tea. And in terms of what 
format I saw it in, I actually saw it in, so I could not, for the life of me, get a 70mm IMAX screening. I tried, I could not get it, um, I should have gotten a ticket three months ago, and my buddy did. Uh, I ended up seeing the film in just 70mm, because I figured that I would be able to see it in IMAX a little bit easier than 70mm, and I love watching films on film, especially when it's a film shot on film. Um, I think it's a totally different experience, so... Uh, even though it wasn't in the IMAX, I was still able to go catch it in 70mm, and I do not regret doing it. So um, hopefully I can catch it now in IMAX 70mm, but we'll see. At least I saw it in 70mm. Scott, what format did you... Well, actually, I know what format you saw it in. Yeah, I, I mentioned a minute ago. I did make my way to see it in IMAX 70mm at 6am. <laughs> I was debating on going to see it in regular 70mm at a reasonable time, and I said no. <laughs> I live in this one of the cities that has IMAX 70mm available. I have two theaters to choose from. Let's see what works. And because, like Anthony, I did not look in advance. And, of course, I saw the movie actually this past Sunday. So I, I had to wait a couple of weeks before I could see it. So even then, the 70, IMAX 70mm screenings were selling out or leaving only the front row available. And because I did not want to experience that, <laughs> I went at 6 a.m. where I could have a reasonable seat. But... Again, like Anthony was saying, seeing it on film was absolutely worth it. The IMAX format, incredible. Um, I'm not, I'm not the best at talking about the differences in formats and, and when you should see something on digital or on film or, or what have you, but I can say that I think it was a absolutely fantastic viewing experience. Uh, there's, there's one. I, I, I'm not the best at telling the difference between formats either except you know there's a graininess that increases color when you watch something on 70 millimeter but there's definitely one difference because I, i've seen it twice i saw it once in a regular 2d format and i saw it once on imax 70 millimeter there is one crucial difference that uh, i think is important to know and uh, I'll, we'll talk about it later but other than that this was i i i need to say this this was shot by hoyt van hoytema who is a legend at, 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 at this point. And he has worked very much so with with Nolan prior to this. Wasn't he, he shot, he shot Dunkirk. He's also shot, yeah. um, I'm, I'm trying to remember all of the non-Nolan movies that he shot. Yeah, he's, he shot Nope. Yes, yeah, he, he shot he Nope as shot well. Nope. I do remember that, yes. Yeah, he, he shot Interstellar and Tenet with Nolan as well, but he's worked with Spike Jones. He shot her. He shot Ad Astra with James Gray. He shot Spectre, one of the James Bond movies, among others, of course. But he doesn't have a super long list of credits at this point, but he has directed some of the most acclaimed movies of recent memory and is working with very big filmmakers almost exclusively at this point. Um, yeah, he's he's got a pretty fantastic IMDb. And the score was done by Ludwig Gorenson, who, well, I mean, he has worked on TV shows like Community and New Girl. He's collaborated with Childish Gambino on uh, all three albums that he's done, and uh, This Is America. He's done stuff with Star Wars. It's, it's, he himself has just a massive, massive. I mean, yeah. he won the Oscar for Black Panther, you know? He, he won the Oscar for Black Panther. He's, he's certainly one of – he's a composer who's had a almost meteoric rise just with how yes. fast he moved up the ranks in Hollywood and, and is now one of the most 
to my knowledge, in-demand composers and someone who's consistently making exciting film scores, including uh, Tenet with, with Nolan. So both of these uh, behind-the-scenes people you're mentioning, Christian, this is not their first collaboration with him. And, and I'm a big film score fan. I love film score. I love uh, film composers. Um, to, to me, he's one of the best working right now, bar none. He is so talented. Um, I think one of the things that makes him so amazing is his willingness to work with different sounds. Um, he clearly does his research, and he brings in all these different instrumentations and all these different sounds from different places um, to really create unique scores that you have not heard before. Um, he has actually, there's a, there's a couple pieces and videos on his work on the score for Oppenheimer that are really fascinating. I won't get into you now, but um, if you have the time to look those up, they're really great. This movie was shot for $100 million, and I think it has a $100 million marketing cost. So total, this is a $200 million movie. It has made back, I think, $560 million. I just think that's interesting considering some of the massive the massive budget that other movies are going on because you have something that looks like this. Now, let's get straight into our opening question because I know that I know that Scott doesn't really know any of my ideas for or thoughts regarding this movie. I've kept it yeah, secret. Christian saw you saw this opening weekend, correct? Yes, I did. And you've seen it twice now. I recently mm -hmm. saw it myself, but you have demanded uh not demanded, but you have been like a vault you have not let a single thought slip in fact anthony i asked christian because i knew he wouldn't tell me his thoughts on barbie or oppenheimer until we talked about them on the podcast because he's like trying to be good at his job or whatever and i asked him to combine his two star ratings for the movies out of 10 and he said seven so we get to find out where oppenheimer how many <laughs> stars oppenheimer makes up out of these seven that that it could be a five-star movie and a two-star movie. could be two three-and-a-halves. You know, who knows? But I've just been <laughs> waiting on bated breath for this conversation to finally find out what Christian thinks of Oppenheimer and then sneak a tiny glimpse at what he thinks of Barbie. Your opening question. The scope of this movie is massive because it attempts to detail the creation of a weapon that has changed the very course of the world and the stress that that puts on a man responsible for it. Now, there's so much to this movie but the movie is called Oppenheimer, so I want us to talk about Oppenheimer himself. What are our thoughts on Killian Murphy's performance? Well, I mean, he is just absolutely phenomenal in this film. Uh, I think he's incredible. Uh, it's an understated performance at times. It's a very understated performance. Uh, he oftentimes feels... I've, I've heard some people say that they feel like they don't get a, necessarily a chance to to know him very well which is i don't agree with that i think that the film gives us a lot of insight into his head um, but he gives a powerful understated performance it's not a big performance he's not yelling he's not screaming he's playing it very realistically um, but he also just has so many layers and there's so much behind his eyes in every scene there's so many times where where he's sitting there he's just staring i mean i think the oppenheimer stare has become a meme at this point it's become a joke but it's because it's so powerful there's so many times where you can feel that he really does have the weight of the world on his shoulders um that he's kind of carrying this entire this this guilt especially of course talking the latter half of the film he's carrying all of this guilt with him but at the same time the fascinating thing about his performance and the character of oppenheimer overall is just how complicated he is um the fact that he can balance the guilt of this character the guilt that oppenheimer is very well known for but also somewhat of the pride and the satisfaction 
Um, I don't know how how in depth we want to get so far, but uh, my favorite scene of the film, at least one of them, is the scene where the sequence where after the bomb is dropped, uh, they have that uh, rally with the bleachers. Um, and it's a wonderful moment because on the one hand, uh, he is having this traumatic vision of what would happen in this room if the bomb had dropped, and he's 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 lamenting over what he had created. But at the same time, when it's time for him to to speak, it like almost switches off, and he becomes a showman, um, and he becomes prideful once again. Uh, it reminds me of a film like Lawrence of Arabia, where you just have this character who is just, uh, on the one hand, has maybe created something that he cannot even imagine, and one that he's so guilty of, but at the same time, he kind of loves that, and he loves that he created it. Um, and I think Murphy, I think he nails it. I think he's absolutely spectacular. I think something that he nails as well is that for a lot of biopics, you know, you feel like the actor at the center has sort of become, has fallen in love with this person, whether they're alive still or, or they've passed on. And they feel like they have to engage in this project of fluffing up the legacy of whoever they're playing. And they speak so effusively about this icon and we see a lot of very standard biopic scenes whether it's them having a, a this amazing moment of reaching the mountaintop and feeling so delighted and excited with themselves or what they've accomplished or the scene where they're you know screaming and crying and depressed or reaching rock bottom whatever that could be and i feel like oppenheimer does skirt around that typical biopic construction mm. and one thing that's fascinating about murphy's performance is he not only gives us Oppenheimer sort of as perhaps the man conceived himself, but notably the movie is bouncing back and forth between time periods and between uh, shot in color and shot on black and white. And those black and white sequences are from a different character's point of view. I, I would say they're both subjective, um, which is maybe different from what Nolan himself has said, but he's not only capturing Oppenheimer himself in this from Oppenheimer's point of view, really, in these color sequences, but also how other people, specifically Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Louis Strauss, this uh, other governmental person, um, perceived Oppenheimer as well. And it's a fascinating performance in how he can capture these, this very internal scientist who's brilliant and cold and, uh, what's the word, persuasive and engrossing at times, but off-putting and womanizing and, and hard to be around at others, but also capturing how other people can perceive him when we're switching point of views and we're switching perspectives. It's a difficult uh, performance to pull off, and I think he absolutely nails it. It's maybe my favorite performance of this year. I, I, I also think it might just be one of the best performances that has come out in the 2020s. It's absolutely incredible because... I mean, and we, we're talking about his pride and we're talking about his stress, but to me, Killian Murphy is also portraying Oppenheimer as a scared little boy. As just, a, a, mm. as someone who is putting on a little bit of that facade. And the thing about what all of us have said, because we're emphasizing different parts of his performance, all of them are being true at the same time. Although it, he, he does a lot of eye acting. It, he has some of the most piercing eyes in all of cinema. And, and, and when he stares, they are reflecting so many different emotions that are bubbling underneath because even when you take it at face value, what do you do when you are being tasked with creating something, knowing that it could cause the destruction of the world and also knowing that even if you yourself are not the person who is the 
if, even if you yourself are not the person who creates it, someone else might. And then what you have done has caused the destruction of thousands of people. How, how, how do you live with that? On its surface, it's something that, that is an entire whirlwind for a performer to try and take on. Um, but let's talk about the Trinity test. The structure of this movie is, is pretty simple. I mean, it's, it's a three-hour biopic, but of course, this biopic is getting up until they actually test the atomic bomb. And even with all of the trailers that we have seen here, that's what it's getting at, right? The testing of the bomb. And this is also the part where I think that the formats matter in how you view them. Very, very simply, an IMAX screen is vertical. It's much more vertical than a regular screen. And when the bomb goes off, the, the Trinity, which is what it's called, um, it's going up. And so the, 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 the thing about IMAX, if you all go see it, I do recommend using that format, although maybe IMAX 70 millimeter is best. It is a big explosion for which they cut out all of the sound. And you are just there and, and Scott, this is something that I know you love, and this is the part where both of us view it absolutely the same. The image is telling the whole story. That you are looking at something so beautiful that will kill so many. It is an unbelievable dramatization of this, this event in history. And Garanson, who we mentioned, his score is almost omnipresent throughout this movie. Like... He, he produced a ton of music, and it's really good. It's great to listen to, and yet in that moment, it's, it's you know, pounding. Like, our hearts are pounding. His score is driving as we're building to this test. The timer is going down, and when it hits zero and the bomb drops, all that sound cuts out, like you said, Christian. And it's this incredible moment as we sit there and wait, just like the scientists and the military folks do to see if it will have the the impact that they expect it to it where they will feel obviously the uh the energy wave that comes after a, a weapon of this um you know catastrophic nature drops and the silence there is so impressive because Nolan is not telling us what to feel with Garanson's music you know he, he is not relying on some of the normal cinematic tricks that a lot of directors use and use very well obviously I love when music sometimes tells me how to feel but in this moment it's all silent and we just see how the actors and their characters react to this moment and it allows us to sit in the moment as well and like you said Christian say this is this is a, a dark beauty seeing the, this pillar of fire rise and we, we know living in 2023 what it's about to do and the kind of destruction it's about to bring um, it, it is a a powerful image and you can feel your own self as you get caught up in like wow this is amazing but also I know that it's about to destroy hundreds of thousands of lives. Uh, it's yeah, it's a, an incredible depiction uh, of this moment in history. I think it's really cool that um, Christopher Nolan is clearly a fan of the film Star Wars: The Last Jedi, and he's clearly <laughs> paying tribute to the Holdo maneuver in this in this scene. I think that's really cool. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah, let's go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ryan Johnson. I also to thought the it was first. a brilliant moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, Ryan Johnson is, is Christopher Nolan's favorite filmmaker. Um, as a fan of both films uh, and both sequences, I, I also I love I, I also love the choice of, of withholding the sound for that moment. Um, it's funny because we talk about Ludwig Granson. Uh, if we if if I had any any critique of the film, and I don't have many, if I had any critique of the film, is that personally there were times where I was like, oh, I could I could use no music in this scene, or perhaps this conversation with Strauss, I don't need music with. Um, but the choice to remove all of that from that sequence, I thought was again masterful. It's just such an amazing choice. Lets you lets you just stare in disbelief for a moment um, as you try to figure out whether or not it actually is or isn't CGI, um, <laughs> and then have that sound wave hit you like a like a truck. Um, really, really impactful. Really well done. Yeah, seeing that in IMAX, it it almost knocked me out of my chair. <laughs> it was awesome. The I. I, I, I really I, I, I really really enjoyed this movie. I have two critiques of it, and I want to discuss. One isn't so much a critique; it's much more so. It's interesting that he made this choice. If you have seen any marketing for this movie, you are waiting for the the atom bomb to drop. You know, you're waiting for the test. Mm. And then guess what? There's an, another hour of movie after that. And so I wanted to know how you all felt about the pacing because mm. as, as it is a Christopher mm. Nolan movie, there are like four different timelines going on told through two different perspectives. One focused on Killian Murphy's Oppenheimer and one focused on a name that we haven't mentioned yet, which is Robert Downey Jr.'s Louis Strauss. I mentioned him, Christian. Come on. <laughs> I said Louis Strauss. Well, we did we, <laughs> We didn't mention the fact that that is one of the key framing devices. Uh, yeah, I. Uh, it's it's funny. Yeah, you're right. The film it feels like it's building to the Trinity test, and it feels like that's what everybody's in the theater for. My favorite portion of the movie, though, is the last third of this three-act story. Really? That is my favorite act. Everything that comes after the bomb is actually what I enjoyed most. Um, not that everything that came before it wasn't great. Uh, but really, I found myself most moved by the... Um, by the by the results and the consequence it's a film about consequences i think there's a wonderful line that emily blunt has earlier in the film i'm paraphrasing i don't remember it by heart but where she basically says you know you can't just do these things and then play victim when there's consequences um and that to me is kind of sums up the whole movie so i love the consequences like i said my favorite sequence is that one where he has to go and and give a speech in front of all of his adoring fans um i think all of the discussions that come afterward all of the all of the theoretical discussions, all of the ethical concerns, all of that stuff is actually what will make the movie stick out to me for years to come. I'm not I... disagreeing with you on that, although I, I, I find it interesting because right after the Trinity test, for at least 15 minutes, I was kind of thinking what's going on and why hasn't this movie ended? And then it kind of, <laughs> it, it becomes a Robert Downey Jr. vehicle. It, it, the emphasis is placed much more on him and I don't know if you all mentioned it but Robert Downey Jr. I don't think for the first two acts was the bad guy for the third act it's almost like a like a switch goes on and he ends up becoming incredibly antagonistic as the man who was perpetuating the loss of Oppenheimer security clearance which I did not expect, and also Robert Downey Jr. is putting in some phenomenal acting in this movie. Yeah, a lot of people are pointing that out, and I fully agree that it's just great to see him 
not playing Tony Stark. You know, I like Tony Stark. <laughs> as big a fan I'm I am, mad at those people. We can I have do both. too. We can have both. As big as big a fan I am of the as big a fan I am of the MCU. I am also delighted at seeing a great actor like Robert Downey Jr. get to sink his teeth into a very different kind of part. And one that uses some of the charisma that he naturally has and used to great effect yeah. as Tony Stark, but also downplays it at times. So, Christian, like you're saying, there's this moment where he's he's often acting across from Alden Ehrenreich, who people will likely recognize from Solo or other uh, movies and other TV projects. But he and Ehrenreich had this scene where it's almost like a plot twist, where <laughs> we learn that Straws has been a sort of behind the scenes antagonist for Oppenheimer. And of course it's history. This is not something that's supposed to be mega surprising, but for those of us who aren't, who don't know all of the details of Oppenheimer's story or all of his life, it's something that definitely played as a twist of sorts and it works very, very well. And like you said, Christian, at that moment that Downey goes from sort of ally for Oppenheimer and general just bureaucrat kind of person he then shifts into a villainous mode and it's it is so fantastically done by Downey making that subtle switch and Aaron Reich picks up on it and his character is a little bit disturbed by it and they have this great interplay uh, as they talk about what this means for Straws and his career and what he's trying to do as he is in in the course of the movie it's during the hearings for his um, Senate hearing for his nomination to the cabinet. He's up for Secretary of Commerce. I'm trying to think, because you, 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 you joked earlier that you were going to make me rank all the supporting actors. The supporting actors that Which would be played, a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> no, because we, we, like you mentioned, we have Alden Ehrenreich, we have um, Rami Malek, we have Benny Safdie, we have whoever the dude is that played Einstein, we have whoever that dude Tom is... Tom Conti. The, the dude who did the security check... The, wh whoever the dude was that, um, oh, actually, you know who my favorite is of the supporting actors? Oh, okay. So it's like Matt yeah, Damon? Matt, no, it was not Matt Damon. It was Casey Affleck. Casey Affleck, mm. who comes in for one scene and just absolutely crushes it. <laughs> it is terrifying what he managed to do in that movie. Like, some people refer to it as a jump scare when you hear his voice, because he doesn't have, like, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't have a regular menacing voice. Yeah, it's slightly higher pitched, it's slightly lower volume, and then like you can kind of feel like every single word he's saying is to hit you with a dagger and kill you. And I'm like, oh, F, like, what is going on? I mean, what's especially great about that scene, and this is a strength of Nolan's and his both his screenplay and his editing, which this film was edited by Jennifer Lame. Shout out to her. She's fantastic. And as they cross cut between Oppenheimer speaking with General Groves, who's played by Matt Damon, as he's also having this conversation with Boris Pash, who is Affleck's character, where Groves is almost getting afraid. He's like, you spoke to Pash? What did you say to him? Like, this guy went to Russia and killed communists with his bare hands, which is true. Look up, I mean, if you look at the life of Boris Pash, you know, he fought in Russia against the Bolsheviks. You, you get a sense of how frightening this guy is. And as you know, Christian, he's not particularly frightening in the scene, at least based on his, his voice. Like you said, a little higher pitch. He's, you know, Casey Affleck is not really doing a ton of affectations. But the way that Damon as Groves is talking about him, we realize how dangerous this guy could be to Oppenheimer. And a big through line of the entire movie is Oppenheimer's politics, which he had associations with the Communist Party in a very dangerous time to be communist in America. And 
uh, he had a relationship with a avowed communist named Gene Tatlock, who's played by Florence Pugh, and also was engaged in unionization efforts on the campus of uh, Berkeley, where he was a professor before the Manhattan Project, donated to left left-wing causes around the world. So there's this huge through line of Oppenheimer's politics getting in the way of his full-throated acceptance by the U.S. government before, during, and after this project. And that, of course, colors his his life. Uh, and his, you know, the, the drama of the third act comes from a lot of the, the implications that this has on his post-Manhattan Project public life. And seeing how dangerous somebody like Boris Pash can be in that moment is so amplified because of how much we've already talked about Oppenheimer's politics, how it could get him in trouble with the government or other forces. It's a very, very well done scene. Anthony, I want to ask you, is there any particular supporting actor or character who stood out to you? Because unfortunately oh, for yeah, most sure. of these people, they only get a couple of scenes to make an impact. Even Rami Malek, who's an Oscar winner, has no lines of dialogue basically for the first two hours and then gets one yeah. great scene at the end. So I, I there's a no, lot absolutely. of people to talk about. I'm curious who stood out to you. Absolutely. Um, gosh, uh, I'll run through, uh, you know, obviously we've already talked about RDJ who is phenomenal in the film. Um, I love Alden Ehrenreich. Uh, I'm actually a, a solo. Wow. This is the second time I've made a controversial statement on star Wars in this episode. I am a, a solo, uh, apologist. I like solo and I like him in solo. Um, so I'm glad to see people starting to realize, Oh, this guy's pretty good actually. Um, uh, I also want to give it up for Florence Pugh. I think Florence Pugh is great in it. Um, uh, and some of her scenes, I found some of the most, uh, impactful, um, one scene in particular, uh, a lot has been made about the, the sex scenes in the film, about the nudity, and it's all just, it's all become so childish. It's like people don't know how to react to a sex scene anymore. Uh, but the, the scene in which um, it's during one of the hearings of Oppenheimer's where they're asking him about his relationship with Tatlock, um, and the first thing you see is then um, Oppenheimer naked in his seat. Um, and then from Emily Bunt's perspective, uh, seeing um, Florence Pugh on top of him is like such like a, a <laughs> like uh, a moment that they, that takes you back for a second here. And it's such a wonderful use. Of, obviously, Nolan has talked so much about how the scenes in color are from his perspective and they're in his head. But I thought that was like one of the most sort of brilliant ways of actually going into not only his head but emily blunt's head in such like a powerful scene of of just how his life is being picked apart uh not only by the people in that room but by the public to an extent as well i mean everybody by the end of this film is going to be making a judgment on j robert oppenheimer whether or not that's what the movie's really intention is um but it's kind of amazing how in that scene you're sort of seeing what the effect of, of picking him apart is doing to not only to him, but the people that are important to him around himself. So Emily Blunt, uh, their relationship, of course, being picked apart. Um, just really, really incredible work. And I think Florence Pugh and Emily Blunt both absolutely kill it, knock it out of the park um, in those sequences. So, yeah, I'll give them a shout out. Here's where my main criticism of the movie is. I don't think that there's enough Florence Pugh, and I definitely do not think that there is enough Emily Blunt. And this is mm. one where um, Nolan has never been known for making the strongest female characters. I can think mm. of one. I, I I can think of oh man, it was uh, in 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 Memento, 
Carrie and Moss. Carrie and Moss. Carrie and Moss. I yeah. think that's probably the strongest character, woman character that that he's written. Guys, I I I don't I don't know it. It feels like there could have been more. And although also maybe that's just the bigger issue that I have with this movie. Again, it's a movie that I love and it's a movie that I think is one of the this year's best movies. I think it's trying to do too much and even in three hours some of the things that it sidelines i wish he'd either i'd, I'd wish he'd rather cut out yeah I it think is a the, lot the female character debate with nolan is a very fair criticism of his work he's he is a masculine filmmaker whether you like it or not and he definitely has room to improve on how he often portrays female characters and like you were saying, Anthony, Emily Blunt, who's playing Kitty Oppenheimer here, the wife of Oppenheimer, who had a very interesting life of her own before and after him. She does not get as much screen time as we may have liked. And Blunt, as an actress, certainly makes the most of it. She's very, very good here. Gets one great scene near the end as she gets to... She's interrogated by the folks who are interrogating Oppenheimer at this at this hearing. But yeah, it's a fair, a fair critique of the film. Obviously, this is a historical story about real people from history. So you in some respects have to work with what history gave us but also you are allowed to write and structure the film as you want there are corners cut to to make a good movie there are ways where he adjusts who Oppenheimer may be interacting with at a given time or whatever you know combines characters uh and so you can get around history sometimes as the movies have often taught us and I certainly think that we could have used either more pew or more blunt or even just more female characters in general there's uh, a female scientist who's played by Olivia Thurlby, who has barely two lines, hmm. maybe. A another person who was part of the Manhattan Project who could have been featured more often, but who knows. Christian, I, I'm curious what you would have excised from the movie. Uh, obviously, it's a, a massive film, and there's not a, a ton that is cut. They, they used all three hours. So I'm curious what you would have dropped to make this a, a tighter package. I, I, I think I would have partially restructured the last hour to make it. I, I, I don't, I don't know to to kind of get to the point of Strauss being evil faster. I think I would have cut also some of the things that he did before the Manhattan Project, and honestly, I would have cut some of the things of him being a womanizer, because um, I'm sure that he was. He just doesn't act like much of it and i'm not sure if that necessarily added to the movie for me but again i i don't know it just felt a little overstuffed uh that being said we don't have a ton of time left y'all and so i before we ended i wanted to ask you all where would this fit in into your nolan rankings if you don't have necessarily nolan rankings just um uh, where would you be is this your favorite nolan movie is it in the top five do you think it's actually lower tier where is, where does it fit in? At least for me, um, The Dark Knight's always going to have a special place in my heart. I just absolutely love that film. However, if I'm speaking without that in mind, I think this is his best script. I think these are the best performances in any of his films. And if somebody on the street were to come up to me and tell me this is his best film, I don't know that I would argue with it. So for me, it's quite high. It's in his, it's in his upper tier. I think it's some of his best work. I've also heard him say, in only so many words, that it's 
sort of like the project he's been working toward. Um, and it kind of feels that way. It kind of feels like you can see a lot of his prior work manifest itself in this in in some subtle ways. So uh, I think it is. I think it's actually one of his best. I really do. I think I think he killed it. I think he knocked it out of the park. And everybody else he worked with on it, I think also uh, knocked it out of the park. I'm really torn by this question because my Christopher Nolan ranking is like hilarious because he's one of my favorite filmmakers. All of his movies get high star ratings for me. Uh, if you look at my letterbox, I have a list of Nolan ranks, and there's probably more four and a half star movies than anything else. <laughs> and four and a half and up, because I've given him a couple five stars. So, again, it's hard to think of something supplanting The Dark Knight as my favorite Nolan film. And yet, there are times when I feel like Oppenheimer may be another masterpiece, like a true blue masterpiece that he's made here. I'm not sure if I need to see it again, perhaps, because I. I don't know. I feel like there are some flaws here, of course. I don't think this is a perfect film. It's just a, a big, massive hunk of historical movie. And there are times when it is absolutely invigorating as a very talky three-hour historical drama. And there are times where I feel like I could I could sense myself maybe leaning back in my chair a little bit. So I'm not sure. I feel like I'm in a very similar spot to Anthony, where if somebody said this was their favorite Nolan film, I wouldn't. I couldn't even disagree with them. I'd say, you know what? I get it. <laughs> this is a fantastic movie. And for me, it's it's definitely near that upper tier. This met every expectation, even after I had it hyped up on social media for two weeks because I wasn't able to see it until a little bit after its initial release and met every expectation. So certainly up there for me. What about for you, Christian? Upper echelon? I definitely, I mean, The Prestige and Memento are still my one and two because I think that those are his best scripts. But it's, it, I, I don't know. It's 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 definitely something that I don't think a three-hour biopic is. It's definitely better than that. Let's wrap this up and, and tell the people what we'll be doing next week. Let's do it. So, of course, that is Oppenheimer. We recommend you see it on the biggest screen as possible with the loudest speakers available. Absolutely a movie that you should see in theaters before it is out. I did see news that its IMAX run was extended through August, so might not be a problem for a while. Definitely encourage you to see it. I might see it a second time. Who knows? Christian, are you going to see it a third time? I think I have to before we make our, our top five movies of the year so far list. There you go. So Christian will be seeing this three whole times. That's nine hours of his life given to Oppenheimer. Surely you can give it three, folks. Our tapped keg of the month here. Of course, we got that new branding. We're not with coffee anymore. We're with booze here on Cinema on Tap. And the keg that we have tapped for the month of August is Big July Blockbusters. We talked about Enheimer. So now, naturally, it's time for the Barbie of Barbenheimer. And Christian and I will be covering Barbie next week. And I am now a little bit anxious because Christian said Oppenheimer is one of the best movies of the year. And as said earlier... He gave the two movies a combined seven stars out of ten, which can only mean one thing, and I am now going to be putting on my pinkest armor to go to battle for Barbie next week. Anthony, any Barbie thoughts? Just quick Barbie thoughts from you? I had a great time with Barbie. Um, by far one of the funniest films I've seen in re recent years. Um Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about how great Ryan Gosling is in the film, and that is absolutely true. Uh, but Margot Robbie is the heart of the film. Um, she gives a wonderful performance uh, that's also, in a way, some, somewhat understated, at least in comparison to his I, pro star. I agree um, with you. I, I really do agree with you. 
Yeah. So best of luck next week as you talk about it. Um, <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's a really uh, well done film, and I think uh, yeah. I you know again I think Greta Gerwig just put out another hit, so I'm excited to see what she does next. I am looking forward to talking You're about to it. See Narnia. Let's go Narnia for Netflix, <laughs> folks. But I'm excited to talk about both Greta Gerwig and Barbie next week on the show. And if you know statistics and box office are holding true, it's likely listeners that you've already seen Barbie. So maybe go see it again. Contribute to its overtaking of the Super Mario Brothers movie for the number one film of 2023 financially. And of course, that is our show. So thank you so much for listening to this point. Of course, we want to extend a thank you to Anthony Finns for returning to Cinema on Tap. Now, uh, he has participated in both Cinema Drip and Cinema on Tap, so we thank you for that, sir. Of course, you mentioned a few places folks can find your work, so keep eyes out for Mi Iha, as well as checking out Anthony's YouTube and other social media links. Uh, you can also follow Christian and myself on social media, of course. Christian's on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, as will the show soon be. We have our Cinema Drip account, but we got to get that Cinema on Tap account rolling, so keep an eye out for that. Christian and I are both on Letterboxd, where you can see their movies that we are rating and reviewing. Anthony, are you on Letterboxd yet? Uh, I am. I don't use it very often. Uh, I'm still on Twitter or X, whatever that is now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I do have a letterbox account, though. I'm, I'm not super active. Well, we'll work on that. We'll get you posted. Okay. And, and we'll be seeing okay. your reviews there. You can also send Christian and myself an email to cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we really want to see listener feedback because we want to know what things you want, to, want us to talk about in our taster section, where we start off every show with a few different topics covering smaller movies that or movies like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem where we may not have the time to devote a full episode to it but we want to mention it and of course other industry topics or maybe you loved Oppenheimer or you loved Barbie and you want to get your thoughts heard on the show send us an email we love to feature listener feedback here on the show and again that's cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com and of course please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts leave us a rating or a review if you can helps us reach new listeners and grow on different platforms and we sincerely appreciate it Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? I don't think that I need to rewatch Barbie. I, I saw it twice. I think my thoughts on it are set. I don't know. Oppenheimer, I'm still wrestling with. Very interesting, folks. You'll have to stay tuned to get Christian's full thoughts on Barbie and mine, of course. And until next time, this has been Cinema on Tap. <laughs>